This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. This summer up there in 72 at the NOC, we'd come up with a name, Nanahala Outdoor Center. We just took about 1,200 raft guests, and we lost money, but we didn't get any salaries. We didn't take any pay that first summer. So it was kind of scary to think of moving up here. Really and I, she was a school teacher. I was a career academic. But as I say, I just couldn't stand the idea of going back to academic work after having the adventure of running our own business with uh, so much excitement and adventure. This episode comes to you from a porch near the Nantahala River in western North Carolina. Payson Kennedy is my guest for today's episode. Payson is a longtime member of the river community. In the summer of 1972, Payson and his wife, Aurelia Kennedy, decided to test the waters of following a new career path. They departed Atlanta for the summer and joined their friend Horace Holden at the Nantahala River in North Carolina and managed a commercial rafting and canoe program guiding trips on the Nantahala and Chattooga Rivers. After that first summer, they quit their Atlanta life and became dedicated river people and with Horace, developed and operated the Nantahala Outdoor Center for the next 40 years. NOC is the short name for Nantahala Outdoor Center. NOC has become a pillar for river people in the southeast, across the United States, and even around the world. In my years of guiding, many of my peers came from NOC. They had taken training courses there and had worked there and had a love for NOC that was unquestionable. When I started this podcast, a good friend of mine, Ellen Babers, another NOC past guide, told me that interviewing Payson Kennedy was imperative for the river radius, and that stuck with me. In September of 2022, I traveled to the East Coast with boats and microphones. I drove up to Payson's house along the Nantahala River. We sat on his amazing porch for the morning, talking about his life with rivers, his wife Aurelia, making the decision to move to a river canyon in North Carolina and leaving behind their more stable Atlanta life, the flow state, and his work helping run safety and stunt work for the film Deliverance. Please join me for a conversation with Payson Kennedy. Well, would you start off and tell me your name? Payson Kennedy. Actually, it's John Payson Kennedy, but in the river world, I'm Payson Kennedy. Can you start off and tell us about your relationship with rivers? Oh, I started canoeing at summer camp when I was a Cub Scout back in 1942. I learned to swim. Then when I passed the swimming test, I could take out a canoe on the lake and got all the waterfront merit badges, uh, life-saving, swimming, canoeing, rowing. And then I worked at a YMCA summer camp when I was in college, started doing some whitewater paddled from North Georgia down to Atlanta, three-day canoe trip before Lake Lanier was built. And uh, there's some whitewater on that, class one and two mostly. After my school years, when I was in the Army, I was stationed in Spokane, Washington, and uh, bought my first boat, a fold boat, from my commanding officer, I started paddling a few of the creeks and rivers around Spokane. There was a creek called Hangman's Creek, I believe, and a friend and I paddled when it was in flood, ended up wrapping the boat around the rock and walking out and uh, (laughs) going back a few days later to retrieve the boat. 
spent several months rebuilding it. A few years later, I was a faculty member at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia and uh, paddled that foal boat occasionally, not much whitewater. Then moved to Illinois, was a scoutmaster, took my scouts canoeing quite frequently. We did at least one overnight trip every month and uh, wasn't much whitewater in Illinois. Uh, the one where we usually paddle was the Sangamon River. Once we did a three-day trip on the Wabash River, taking my children who were quite young at the time. Uh, I've got two daughters and two sons. Then moved to Atlanta, where I'd grown up, but moved back to Atlanta. A friend had a summer camp there. Horace Holden had a day camp on the Chattahoochee River. And I started going canoeing whitewater fairly often with him. Uh, we would come up to the Nantahala often, most of the rivers in North Georgia. Horace decided he wanted to start an organization to teach safety and to uh, provide information about the rivers so people that paddled knew what to expect. So he called a meeting that, of a group that became the Georgia Canoeing Association. And I became very actively involved in that. We paddled most weekends. By that time, we were running all the rivers around North Georgia, uh, southern North Carolina, Tennessee, including the Chattooga. Yeah, Doug and Claude and I became paddling buddies. We paddled virtually every weekend. Doug's basement, he, when he shopped for a house in Atlanta, he said the main requirement was to have a big basement that could be used as a boat building shop. He had molds for C1, C2, several different model kayaks. All the Explorer Scouts, including my daughters, built their own boats, and uh, Claude's sons built their boats. Aurelia and I made, my wife was Aurelia, she and I made boats for for ourselves. So we made all kind of boats, uh, C2, C1s, kayaks. At that time, I was working in the library at Georgia Tech. I read everything I could about paddling, subscribed to American Whitewater, was building all kind of paddling gear, decks for our canoes, uh, spray skirts, paddles. Today's episode is sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. Right now I'm driving my Nissan Frontier long bed four-door truck with a camper shell. We're on a 6% grade climbing uphill. Three dudes in the truck, bed full of gear, pulling a trailer with three boats stacked, all the gear. And we are just climbing. This Frontier has a nine-speed transmission. Super smooth, uphill shifting, real steady climbing. Roads are slick, truck's holding great. It's just really comfortable, safe, strong boating truck. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. Our sponsor today is Over at Raft Covers. This raft cover is built with a heavy-duty woven poly fabric that is UV stabilized and blocks 98% of UV light. This cover is breathable and does not flap around in the wind. It is water permeable so rain and snow does not puddle up on top of it and itself heals. If you poke a hole in it, the woven fabric can be massaged back to whole. I use this over at Raft Cover on my boats on my trailer right now and I am so glad to have this product. 
Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS for free shipping on your over at Raft cover. That is RIVERRADIUS, one word, lowercase. Use the link in our show notes or our Instagram link tree to get right to over at Raft covers. When the book Deliverance came out, I immediately had to read that and was fascinated by it. The author, oh, what's his name? It was Poet Laureate and uh, James Dickey. It was partly autobiographical. He had grown up in Buckhead, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta. And uh, he went paddling one weekend with uh, several buddies from Buckhead, and they went up to a river in North Georgia. The river was harder than expected. His friends weren't very good paddlers, except for one guy named Lewis King, who became the model for the character Lewis in uh, the novel Deliverance. The guy that was running the shuttle ran into the moonshiners, and he didn't believe that that's the guy was coming down to meet Canuis. They took him down to the river under gunpoint and waited until the canoes came in, and then the guy believed the story and let him go. Uh, but that started Dickie's imagination, and he came up with a story for the book Deliverance, mm-hmm. starting out based on that episode that he and his buddies had had paddling mm-hmm. in North Georgia. Uh, of course, using a lot of imagination. <laughs> so a couple years later, uh, Warner Brothers decided to make a movie of the book. Dickey was an advisor. They chose John Borman to be the director. And one evening, they had a uh, a gathering at Lewis King's house. Now, Lewis King was the model for the character Lewis. He was an archer a championship tennis player at Georgia Tech, avid canoeist, uh, a real outdoor person. Borman, the director, and James Dickey, the the author, and uh, Claude and Doug and I had dinner together at Lewis King's house, and uh, John Borman was asking us about where they should film the movie. Uh, Lewis King had said he really didn't know the North Georgia and the Southern Appalachian rivers that well, so he had called the three of us in. He had heard that we knew all the rivers around. So he called us. We had the dinner there, and then after dinner we're talking about where would be the best place to film. The Chattooga was our favorite river, and we recommended it. We also recommended uh, the Little River in uh, Alabama, near the corner of Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. And we thought, well, that fit the story well because of the spectacular canyon. So we recommended the Chattooga and the Little River. But then the Little River got moved out because in the summer, it's usually too low to paddle. You've got to just paddle it generally after rain. And And we took Borman up to see the Chattooga, and he filmed Claude Terry and I running Bull Sluice in an open canoe. He was pretty impressed that it looked exciting and dangerous and would would be appropriate. He didn't see the rest of the river, just that one big rapid that's only less than a quarter mile from the highway. But it is a pretty spectacular rapid, class four or five, depending on the water level, four at normal water level. So they decided to film there. Maybe you have seen the film Deliverance. I can imagine you've heard reference to it. Deliverance is a film that unintentionally supported the growth of river running in the southeast as it exposed people to the rowdy and beautiful rivers that were available for river trips, people who otherwise would not have known. The film came out in 1972. In 1979, 
a TV commercial promoting river running emerged with Tennessee Governor Lamar Alexander and country music singer and movie star Jerry Reed doing the promotion. And in 1984, recreational releases were secured on the Okoe River after an eight-year effort led by David Brown, who later also led the work to secure releases on the Gauley River in 1987. Other rivers were also gaining greater protections in this era. So, while the film Deliverance has its paddle faster mantra, it also was a film that highlighted the beauty and recreational access that the rivers in the southeast offered and elevated those waters to a wider public audience. We talked to him a good bit about the possibility of being doubles in the movie, and uh, but then we were pretty disappointed when they started filming and didn't invite us to participate. I worked out pretty regularly over at Georgia Tech, and uh, one of my good buddies there who I swam with was an ex-Navy SEAL named Charlie Williams that had had part of one hand blown off, and he used a rubber mold on that hand when he swam, and he, he was a good swimmer, swam all the time, so we often swam together. They hired him to be their safety expert and canoeing instructor. Charlie really was a excellent swimmer but hadn't done all that much paddling but he taught them to paddle and was their whitewater advisor for the first half of the filming and then they had a couple accidents on the river where they lost equipment and scared some of the people involved especially the actors the actors said they needed to get some more expert help so at that point Borman contacted us again they decided they did need to use us, but they couldn't call us stuntmen. We were, we were general flunkies, telling them where to film, uh, carrying gear and crew down the river in the rafts till we got to the filming spots, and just generally helping. When the actors themselves were running rapids, we would be downstream with ropes or canoes ready to help with rescue. They eventually did decide to film us a couple days in the hardest rapids on the Chautauqua section known as the Five Falls. The actors didn't go down into the Five Falls for filming. The biggest rapid they were filmed at was uh, Raven's Rock Rapid. That's pretty impressive, and that's in the movie. They did lots of the filming in the movie at Screaming Left Turn, which is convenient to the put-in, the highway. We were just there for the last half of the filming. They did film us, the three doubles, and a fourth uh, professional stuntman from Hollywood named Ralph Garrett. So there were four of us that doubled in some filming down in the Five Falls. Doug and I were made up like uh, Ned Beatty or Bobby in the story, and Claude Terry and the stuntman from Hollywood, Ralph Garrett, were made up like uh, John Borman. By that point, the character Lewis was supposed to have a broken leg, so we used a dummy in the bottom of the canoe to represent Lewis. The fourth actor, I forget his name, he was supposed to have been shot and drowned by mm-hmm. that point, so we didn't need a double for him. So there were two of us doubling for Ned Beatty and two for John Voight. And using beat-up aluminum canoes, they were supposed to have been in the rapids a good bit by that point. And they were scrapes and bruises and so on on the faces. They, they painted us up like that. 
I was doubling for Bobby, and I wasn't fat enough, so they wrapped uh, folded-up towels around my midsection and then put a a wetsuit vest over it to make me look fatter. (laughs) I had pretty curly hair, and they sprayed it to make me look blonde. (laughs) And uh, It's surprising at a distance uh, how little... (laughs) <laughs> it difference it makes you don't focus on the individual features you're yeah. just seeing the broad thing so if you have the same clothes and we were made up with the bruises and scratches and scrape they filmed us at entrance rapid and it corkscrew and it shoulder bone one team would run while the others carried the boat back upstream or maybe some of the crew who carried the boat back up then we'd get in and just run over and over uh, Claude and I were making it most of the time, but we'd always end up with the canoe virtually swamped. Uh, that was an exciting, fun to watch. We watched them film in Tallulah Gorge, where they staged the crack-up of the boat, the shooting of the, the guy in the bow of the canoe, and then the climb up the wall of the gorge. That was all filmed in Tallulah Gorge. And we were there watching and, and providing safety downstream from where they they filmed just above the big waterfall that uh, Lewis gets washed over in the movie. It was pretty incredible. For the crack up the canoes, one canoe was an aluminum, uh, 17 foot long Grumman shoe keels canoes, and then the other one was an old town wooden canvas. And prior to filming the crack up, they sawed the wooden canvas canoe virtually in half it just left the gunnels intact with the the uh, rest of the canoe sawed through when they got ready to film they had rope on each end of the canoe and uh, ran it down a trestle pulled it out in into the current in front of the aluminum canoe and because it had been sawed it actually broke before the aluminum canoe hit it. The <laughs> canoe was supposed to hit it and break it in half. Well, it, the force of the water broke it in half, but they didn't have a lot of uh, wooden canvas canoes ready at hand. And I think they were filming with three cameras. With one of them, you wouldn't barely see that it broke too soon. So they decided to go ahead and use that footage. And uh, that was one of the things that if you're, if you uh, pay attention in the movie, you see when the canoe breaks, it's not all splinted and jagged, but a perfectly smooth cut that had been sawed as the canoe breaks apart. Uh, so that was interesting to see how they staged that. And again, we were downstream with ropes to pull the actors out before they went over the big waterfall. Uh, so that was all exciting. And then... They built another scaffolding up above the water level with a deck on top, a regular commercial building scaffolding, uh, I guess just one section high, but it came up out of the water. And they mounted the aluminum canoe on that at the midpoint and put uh, the stuntman from Hollywood that was so became so famous after Deliverance. Is that uh, uh, Burt Reynolds? Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds in the stern uh, made up as the character Lewis, modeled after Lewis King. So Burt was in the stern, and they put ropes on the bow of the canoe. And it was hinged at the midpoint to put ropes on the bow, and then on signal crew members pulled on those ropes so it catapulted the canoe forward 
and Reynolds went out and did that somersault and landed in the water. Then they filmed, uh, somebody went over the lip of the falls and they stopped him in a pool just a little way down and pulled him out by rope. And uh, then a dummy washed over the falls. So, (laughs) So it all looked like that the aluminum canoe hit the wooden canvas one, broke it in half, catapulted Lewis out and over, and it, he washed over the falls and got the broken leg. It was really interesting to see. They filmed it just little segments that would last a few seconds and then spliced it all together to make it look continuous. Then after that, they filmed the... Um, Climbing the canyon wall, that was interesting, too. That was in Tallulah Gorge. They had a wooden boom out above the bank at the top with a pulley and and ropes down. So when uh, they were climbing up, he was roped, uh, and they could actually move him around from the top and pull him up to different places. So they didn't have to climb the whole gorge. They could just move him around to spots to be filmed. And most of that was done by the Hollywood stuntman, Ralph Garrett. But uh, John Voight did do some of it himself, and uh, uh, that was all pretty pretty interesting. And it, the Hollywood stuntman, Ralph Garrett, did the fall uh, when the rope supposed to break, I think it was, and he fell into the water. Ralph Garrett actually did that. That was pretty spectacular. So anyway, those are my stories from Deliverance. Uh, we worked uh, uh, two or three weeks, I think, uh, as helpers, advisors, and then the two days being filmed down in the Five Falls. Did you did you expect the movie to become such a well-known, kind of almost a cult classic at this point? That, you know, people still talk about that movie today. Yeah, I think it's recognized as an outstanding job. I don't know that I thought about how much it was. I was just excited to be involved in seeing it and uh, having the experience meeting James Dickey and Burt Reynolds, John Boyd. It was all pretty exciting and fun. I've looked at it several times over the years, and uh, it's become something of a classic. I think a lot of people, when they're planning to go rafting on the Chateauga, will rent the movie Mm -hmm. and look at it uh, before the trip. You were asking me initially about how I got involved with the Rivers and all. So that was a big thing. That was in 1971, spring and summer of 1971. It was filmed. It didn't come out till the summer of 72. And at that point, I had decided to change careers. I'd been an academic for about 15 years I got two master's degrees, taught college a couple years, then decided to go into library work. By that time, I rank of an associate professor, did a big feasibility study for what became known as the 10-state Southeastern Library Network, which would be based on computer operations. And uh, a couple of the directors asked me about becoming the leader in that effort but I had noticed over the years in Atlanta when I was doing so much paddling that occasionally in my work at tech I would get completely caught up in what I was doing maybe writing a computer program or something I get caught up in it forget about anything else just really concentrating and focused on it and when that happened 
I, I just didn't notice any interruptions or anything. I would often work for several hours, and by the time I thought about what time it was, it'd be after dark, and most people had gone home. And I would think how much I got done and how exhilarating it was. Uh, that happened to me occasionally at work, but I had similar experiences much more frequently in my outdoor activities. If I was running a new river, or maybe there was somebody in trouble and needed a rescue, or if I was competing, maybe a slalom competition, I would get in that same state of focused concentration, forget about Say if it was in a slalom race, forget about who was watching or who I was competing about. Be just entirely focused on the next gate, on just what I was doing at that moment. And it was absolutely exhilarating. And I would usually end up performing much beyond my normal ability. And people who I knew were better paddlers in normal circumstances, I would beat and uh, I did pretty well in a lot of races. I also, if it was on the river and someone needed rescuing, I might. I remember once on the Chattooga running rapids without scouting or thinking about being nervous or scared because there was somebody downstream that needed a rescue. Uh, so those experiences were really exhilarating, and I felt like I was performing way beyond my normal ability. Payson integrates this flow topic into so many parts of our full conversation, which is emblematic of how he has integrated the flow state into his life. In our conversation, he talked about two influences that helped him learn more about the flow state. The first is the psychologist, and the second is the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, written by Robert Persig. There are links for both authors and the book in the show notes. I got to thinking about it and thought, well, the people who must be most successful are the ones that get into that state frequently in their in their work, where they perform beyond their normal ability. They're not, they don't get tired. They just enjoy or exhilarated by what they're doing. But it's happening to me much more often in these outdoor activities than in the work I was doing at Tech. And so I had to decide whether I wanted to continue in library automation work, an academic career, or whether I wanted to go into outdoor recreation. And I decided since the experiences were more common in outdoor recreation, that would be the career path that I would follow. So I told a friend that Horace Holden I'd mentioned before who formed the Georgia Canoeing Association, I told Horace about this, and that same winter, after the winter after we had filmed Deliverance, he came up here to the Nantahala to an operation at the takeout of the river called the Tote and Terry. The GCA, the Georgia Canoeing Association, had started running races up here in the summer, and uh, whenever we had those races, the headquarters would be at the Tote and Terry Motel. Horace would rent a a room there to be race headquarters. And uh, 
he got to know the owners of the Tote and Terry. They had a little restaurant, a gas station, souvenir shop, and motel, 14-unit motel. So Horace came up to see if they would be interested in selling, and his timing was very fortuitous. Uh, the man who owned it, Vince Gasaway, he uh, agreed to sell it to Horace. Horace gave him a check for $1,000 earnest money and drew up a contract, and they made the agreement for Horace to buy it. Now, he knew I was thinking of changing careers going into outdoor recreation. How old were you when you were making this choice to change from library work to outdoor education? 39. 39, okay. Four children, uh, owned a house in Atlanta, <laughs> uh, two cars. My wife was working as a public school teacher. It was a little bit scary to her. I was giving up a tenured position as an associate professor and a chance to get this job as director of the Southeastern Library Network. Pretty exciting, but against this uncertainty of a new career in outdoor recreation. I started talking to the people at the North Carolina Outward Bound School about coming to work there and uh, developing a whitewater program for them. Horace was aware of this, and he said, well, instead of going to work for Outward Bound, why don't you come up and uh, run an outdoor recreation center for me on the Nantahala River? There were no raft, no rafting in the southeast at that point. The first rafting in the east was on the Yakagani River in Pennsylvania. We had been up there to see what they did a few times and to paddle the yak. Uh, and then John Dragon uh, moved down to the New River in West Virginia and started a rafting operation there. And then there was a guy, Jim Griner. He, with John Dragon's help, came down and investigated the Chattooga, and uh, in 1971, when we were filming Deliverance, I think he actually did start offering raft trips on the Chattooga. Uh, they're still operating there and on many of the other southeastern rivers. They've been our biggest, best competitor over the years. But, so we didn't get started here till 72. It was the winter of 71 that Horace asked me if I would be interested, and really and I decided we would come up and try it for a summer. She was a public school teacher. She had the summers off, and I got a leave of absence for Tech to come up here for the summer months. And uh, so 1972, we, we came up here for the summer, but planned to go back to our regular jobs in Atlanta. Today's episode is sponsored by Over It Raft Covers. Right now, my boats are inflated sitting on a trailer and they are covered with a raft cover from Over It Raft Covers. This is my first season using this cover and it is so much better than the ridiculous plastic tarps I used and destroyed for years. This Over It Raft Cover is perfectly shaped for my boat. It has slots for the oar towers and it has solid D-rings sewn on to secure this to the trailer or to a raft. These covers are designed and sold by Kevin, a river runner who likes to keep his boat well protected and ready to go on the trailer. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS for free shipping on your over at raft cover. That is RIVERRADIUS, one word, lowercase. Use the link in our show notes or our Instagram link tree to get right to over at raft covers. Hey folks, this is Sam. Right now I'm driving a 2023 Nissan Rogue up a river canyon. Here we go. We're going to do some passing. This car is really strong and smooth with its transmission. 
feels very powerful, very safe, and very steady. Easy to drive, handles great, has a small footprint in the lane, and yet it really feels like a big car. It's got big windows. I was driving it yesterday with four big guys. It handled the load great. It handled the space of us really well. This is the kind of car you can put your boats on the roof. You can load the back hatch with lots of river gear. The other thing I've noticed about this car is that it has an incredible turning radius. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. We didn't have much time to hire a staff, but the most important hire that we made for that summer was Jim Holcomb. His whole family were canoeists. He and his brother were on the first exploratory run of the Gauley River. And Jim had run rivers up and down the states in the southeast and up to the mid-Atlantic. His sister Louise was on the 1972 U.S. whitewater team in the 72 Olympics at Munich. Jim was a most valuable employee because he he was such a paddling expert, but also because he knew how they ran raft trips up on the yacht. So that was a good experience for us. This summer up there in 72 at the NOC, we'd come up with a name, Nanahala Outdoor Center. We just took a few people that first summer we didn't have much time to publicize it but we started running trips on the Nanahala and the Chattooga and uh, took about 400 people down the Chattooga and about 800 down the Nanahala just 1200 raft guests that first taught a few people uh, canoeing lessons and we lost money so it was kind of scary to think of moving up here when fall came Labor Day we went back to Atlanta And we spent the next several months trying to decide whether it was rational for us to give up our careers and come up here. I really couldn't much envision going back to an academic career at that point. I I talked earlier about this state of intense concentration that I like to get in. At that time, I didn't know any name for it or the psychologist had been interested, but Later, I learned it's called the flow state, the flow experience. And um, But as I say, I just couldn't stand the idea of going back to academic work after having the adventure of running our own business with uh, so much excitement and adventure. How do you say your wife's name? Aurelia, A-U-R-E-L-I-A, but most people called Aurelia for sure. Aurelia. Aurelia, did, did she have the same kind of drive and interest to start to come up here and do the outdoor center or was it more your drive i would say kind of in between Mm. she was an avid paddler she paddled with us most weekends she was a racing partner for me and and enjoyed that she loved camping and she loved outdoor things she knew more about plants and things in the woods and she's always Loved foraging in the woods, finding wild mushrooms. So it appealed to her greatly. But she was more nervous than I was about making the change. I, I somehow don't worry about what might happen that much. I, I think I'm more focused on the possibilities. We had four children that first summer. They were 10, 12, 14, and 16. So in just a few years, they were all going to be wanting to go to college. And we wanted them to go to college. We both 
highly valued education. If you were rational about it, it's pretty scary to give up secure positions and you sell your house, give up your retirement money, and try move to this operation that was very seasonal and that lost the money the first summer uh, and that we had no experience in except that one summer. None of us had ever worked in a motel or a restaurant or a gas station uh, or in retail. Uh, it was all new to us. Well, so what what did become of NOC, Nanahill Outdoor Center? What has it become in the last kind of couple decades and what is it today? It's a huge business today. It's profitable now, and uh, we take over 100,000 of people a year rafting on six or seven different rivers in the southeast. We rent rafts to a great many. We teach canoeing, have, a, have an outstanding uh, training program in canoeing and kayaking. Uh, they teach survival courses, uh, emergency medical, first aid training, uh, all kind of outdoor subjects. A couple restaurants here on the river at the Nanahala. So it's a big business now. It, it's, it's become uh, quite popular and well-known. T- tell me about how NOC developed the school, the idea of teaching people to paddle. Because that was, that was kind of a new thing, wasn't it? There, was there a lot of other instruction going on, or were you guys one of the first? We were one of the first, I guess, not the first. Yeah. Uh, there was... Uh, a program up on the Ottawa River in Canada. Paddling clubs were starting to teach. The Georgia's Canoeing Association would run some courses. It was a lot of what we were thinking of when we came, that teaching is is fun and, and, and rewarding. And also you have longer to work with the people normally than just taking on a half-day or a full-day raft trip. Uh, most of the courses initially were either for a weekend or for five days, so you get to know people better and you can see their progress. So everybody, not everybody, most everybody enjoyed teaching those programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we thought there was a need for it. I say that was why Horace had originally deci- uh, organized the Georgia Canoeing Association to teach safety so it wouldn't have uh, accidents like the one on the Chester T River that uh, he had thought was shouldn't happen that people should know more about what they were getting into and uh, how to keep it safe so you wouldn't have that kind of accident occurring then noc becomes a place that teaches teaches this and then from what i what i've gathered is that a lot of people would come back and then your students would then work at noc and and there just became this big culture of people coming to noc from all around the country to really learn how to paddle that's right. One thing, I, when I mentioned Jim Holcomb coming to work and how important that was, the other thing that led to was his sister coming to work the next summer. In 72, she was competing in the Olympics. Louise came to work then the second summer, so we had Olympic paddler on staff, and she brought her fiancé, who was also on the Olympic team, uh, Russ Nichols. Well, over the next few years, half of the U.S. 72 Olympic team came to work here, and some of them stayed for their whole career. Angus Morrison stayed here and ran our rafting operation on Nanahala for many years. He competed in uh, 
that 72 Olympics in whitewater and then later in uh, flatwater canoeing and uh, dragon boat racing, all kind of paddling. And Angus, Angus was a, a real leader in, in teaching all the staff good paddling form and efficiency. He, he really emphasized body rotation and your forward strokes. John Burton came to work uh, in 75, and he helped me run the center here for most of the time. And uh, he was a C2 paddler on that 72 team. All three of the women came to work over the years. Uh, Lynn Ashton was uh, one of the three women. Uh, so there was Louise, uh, Lynn, and then O.K. Goodwin's daughter, uh, Cindy, worked just for a short time one summer. So at one point, we had all three of the women from the Olympic team. Anyway, since then, we've had about 26 or 27 Olympic paddlers who've worked here. Some of them on the Olympics and then working here from that 72 team, but several of them working here, developing their skills, and then going to the Olympics. Two, I guess, best known would be... Uh, Joe Jacoby and uh, his partner paddled C2 in 92 Olympics at Barcelona and won the gold medal. Uh, the only gold medal the U.S. has ever won in paddling was by two NOC staff members at that time. And that gave the NOC credibility for teaching from the beginning. You could come here for courses and have a good chance of having an Olympic paddler as your instructor. Mm -hmm. And then there was the coming together of so many top paddlers who were always talking at meal times and so on about how to teach and how to improve the way they teach and and about aspects of it so the the program was pretty amazing and uh, bunny and kent ford kent ford was a national champion many times and a coach you know, he was head of instruction for a number of years he wrote in the NOC stories about how this culture developed of, of teaching and learning and, and improving teaching techniques and how they developed all kind of new paddling ideas and ways of teaching. And he and Bunny were strong leaders of, of the paddling school. Whitewater kayaking is around the world now. There's people traveling all over the world to go find rivers. It's all over this country, all over this continent. Do you feel like a lot of that was born out of kind of the era that you were developing NOC and not, and not just you and NOC, but like other outfitters and other boaters, but kind of a lot of this really expansive skill sets and these really safe boaters and these, these innovative boating techniques that, that kind of were born out of this time and this place? Well, I think we certainly had an important part of it. Of course, there were other places like Otterbar Kayak School out west and uh, the school up on the Ottawa River and so on. But uh, the NOC was one of the leaders, yeah. What do you think of that? Well, I'm proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I guess more than proud. I thoroughly enjoyed being a part of it. I say I spent a lot of those early years in frequently being in the flow state and I could work long, long hours without getting tired because it felt more like play than work when I was out on the river. Then, you know, I guess as it, things got more organized and uh, routine and safer, 
and we learned how to run safe trips on the Chatuga so the rafts weren't flipping and people swimming like those first years as we were learning in the small rafts. There was less tension. I was less often in the flow state. But what developed then was our adventure travel program in foreign countries. First foreign trip we ran was on the Usumacinta River in Central America. Very few people have been down that river since the Mayans had uh, centuries ago. And uh, we started running trips there in 1976, the winter of 76. We ran our first exploratory trip on the Usumacinta. It became quite popular. With a lot of winters, we were running three trips down there. So Relia and I would go down every winter. February was when we usually went. We'd spend two weeks on adventure travel trips through the jungle, exploring the ruins of the old Mayan cities along the, the river. So we started doing that the last few years. But anyway, I loved those adventure travel trips, and uh, the challenges on those would put me in the flow state. Uh, so that provided uh, new challenging experiences. That's one of the things about flow. After you've done something a number of years, it tends to become routine you, and uh, not as challenging. So I was always looking for something that kept me on edge, and that's what produced those states of concentration that result in the flow experience, where you perform at your best. Did your wife, Relia, did she also, you had success. You, I mean, you just told me that this place, NOC, has become very successful, it's profitable, it's, it worked. It worked, it was great. Did she also enjoy the success, and, and, and was she, like, did, it, did she come to the place in her life where she was very glad that you had left Atlanta? Oh, yeah. She, she yeah, yeah. equally glad. But it was, uh, <laughs> it was a few years before we were confident of succeeding. We were always able to pay our bills. But the first year the books actually showed a profit was 1975. Yeah. And what a difference that made. First few years, the restaurant leaked. There was kudzu growing up through the walls. There was all kind of challenges of, of operating when you didn't have capital to buy much of new equipment or to make repairs. By 1980, we bought the property on this side of the river. We had bought property for staff housing, and we could envision a future like this. Up until then, it was touch and go. You know, you've talked about, you talked about Relia several times, kind of in different, different parts of the story today. Would you tell me more? Would you tell me more about your wife, Relia? Oh, Relia grew up in North Atlanta. Uh, we met as teenagers. Uh, she went to First Presbyterian Church, and a lot of my friends did. That was a big church in Atlanta. Then, after high school, she went to as a camp counselor teaching canoeing at Camp Marywood. Well, that summer. Halfway through basic training, I got a weekend pass and hitchhiked over to Camp Marywood, and we spent a couple days together, and we decided we couldn't wait two years. So she told her family we were going to get married. She taught canoeing, and and she loved the outdoors, and uh, she also loved teaching. She, uh, When we first got married, she worked at an integrated preschool nursery in Atlanta, mainly catering to parents at Atlanta University. 
but they had a cooperative integrated preschool before integration took place in the South. And a lot of the parents were civil rights actresses like Julian Bonds. His children were in that school. And uh, she integrated her Girl Scout troop and was fired, well, asked to resign by the Girl Scouts because she had, on her own, integrated her Girl Scout troop. So she was a good teacher, taught there at the cooperative nursery school. The first few years, when things were financially so difficult, she was the main breadwinner. She uh, was a teacher in the Andrews, the nearest town to the uh, southwest of us here. She taught at Andrew for about five years till the center became uh, more profitable and able to support us. So she loved teaching, working with young people. She loved outdoor life, and she was for she was a great adventurous. She loved the advent, doing the adventure travel trips with me on the Sumacinta, and then in uh, then in Nepal and traveling in India. And uh, we did a couple trips to the Cayman Islands for scuba diving and and snorkeling, where she and I were the trip leaders. And she loved adventure travel, traveled all around the world, uh, bicycling in Czech Republic, bicycling in Italy, uh, Portugal, Spain, France, so lots and lots of trips. We loved traveling and seeing the world. And when we came here, she took over the restaurants. So she was always in charge of food services at the center, and she developed a community that really was... Uh, close-knit in, in Rivers Inn Restaurant and then eventually in Rilla's Garden Restaurant. So those were the <clears throat> main loves of her life, were the teaching, outdoor adventure, traveling, and food service. So unfortunately, she developed uh, sickness after, after we retired, and uh, she died three years ago. Sorry, she's gone. In the days before I interviewed Payson, I randomly met his grandson, a now-grown man, Andrew Holcomb. I was telling Andrew that I was so excited for this interview with Payson, he said to make sure I asked about stacking rocks and digging out the pond. Payson and Relia's house is very near an abandoned portion of the Nantahala River. The house is built on a steep canyon wall, and the base is right at the old river area. This portion of the river is abandoned because of work done well before Payson moved there to straighten the river so that a railroad track could be kept straight along the river. I did ask about stacking rocks in the pond. Payson explained his years-long work of building a pond by digging out parts, stacking rocks, dealing with invasive plants, and the project was right in front of us, right where the old riverbed was. It was huge, size of a soccer field, and there is an island next to his house, a small island. It stands out and has an attractive appeal to it. Tell me tell me about the island over here and the maple tree. Well, that was the first area where I started was where the island is because that's where the creek, the waterfall comes down and the water comes in the creek. So it silts in the fastest and the most. So I first started cleaning it up there. And I said, well, what do I do with all this rock and mud? Well, I build an island. So I started that. 40 years ago, I guess, 35 years ago. 
that was the start of it, was just getting rid of all that dirt and rock. Uh, and I said, well, I'll build an island here, and we'll, it'll be a neat place where I can uh, put in a couple of really nice trees and just a nice feature. So, but, and it's expanded, and it was the first area I started, and now it's the area I'm finishing work on. And uh, I spent so much time working on it that I formed an attachment. And uh, so when Relia and I filled out our five wishes some years ago about what to do when we die, I said, well, I, I think uh, I have an attachment to that, that island. I want my ashes there. And she said, well, I want my ashes where yours are. So we both decided that's where we wanted our ashes. So Relia died three years ago. And uh, after the memorial service, the family came and spread her ashes there and planted that little maple tree for her memorial on the island. And when I die, that's where my ashes will go as well, around that maple tree on the the island. I've spent more time there probably than anywhere anywhere else in my life. <laughs> well, Payson, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit with me here and Tell well, me your story. I, you know, I, like most old people, I enjoy talking about my life and <laughs> <laughs> telling stories. I've gotten more and more as I get older and enjoying it. An Appalachian-sized thank you goes out to Payson Kennedy for talking with me last fall and sharing his river stories. A few other updates to the NOC story. Horace Holden, the business partner and friend of Payson and Aurelia, passed away in 2019. In 2012, after 40 years of life at NOC, the three original owners sold NOC to a new ownership group. Today, NOC is still a vibrant river outfitter and school. They had the original location and outpost in three other states working on numerous rivers in the region. They employ a full-time and seasonal staff crew of about 700 people. This episode is the direct result of three other people. Ellen Babers shared the initial idea with me of interviewing Payson. Mark Hunt became my agent of sorts, getting me connected with all of the right people. And Dave Perrin made the phone call and vouched for me to get me settled onto Payson's porch. Ellen, Mark, and Dave, all good river people, thank you. Today's sponsors are Over at Raft Covers and the Denver area Nissan dealers. You can find website and Instagram links for both sponsors in the show notes. Over at Raft Covers is offering free shipping when you use the promo code RIVERRADIUS, all one word. Get your raft covered up just in time for the winter season. All River Radius social media is organized by Samantha Seiss. Today's music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Oh, I think of myself primarily as an open canoeist. I started out in wooden canvas canoes and uh, I got into C1 paddling. I thought, well, that's the most like an open boat. So I competed in C1 and C2 for a number of years. From 1974 to 84, I won uh, classes and national championships six times. Then I got into kayaking. I thought kayaking was by far the easiest boat to paddle but it never had quite the same appeal to me. I did run the Grand Canyon, the Upper Yacht, some some fairly hard rivers, but at Chioa, I reverted to the open boat eventually. I still race open canoe occasionally. Like this Sunday, I'll 
do the paddling leg in a triathlon. So I still enjoy paddling an open canoe, 